Uh, all right, so uh, this is kind of a fun week for me uh, because what's happening is we are actually closing up um, our Freedom From Religion series. And I don't know about you, but I always love it when we end a series. I love it when we be... That, that sounds bad, right? No, I love it when we start one. And then I really, really enjoy it. But as we finish it, I kind of have this, this feeling, this angst, this excitement. It's like when you finish a really good book. I don't know when the last time you read a really good book was, but, but you finish it and you're like, oh, that was awesome. And you can't wait. You stay up late to get to the end because you want to you wanna see it and you want to see it to completion. You want to know how it ends. And then you get to the end and you're like, oh, what am I going to do next? Don't worry, we got stuff planned. It's going to be good. But I am really excited uh, as we get to the last week of our Freedom From Religion series and we look at how um, Paul addresses the church and how we close this up and, uh, and exciting stuff is going to happen. Uh, a couple of just refreshers, reminders of where we've been. What we've been doing in this series is we've been taking a look at what Paul has for the church, what he impresses upon the church, and, and basically it's in the way that we live differently because... Okay? Because we are not rooted in a system of religion any longer. See, but Paul's writing to a church, Paul's writing to a church that was wrestling with the idea of religion and what it is and how you go through the motions and how you set everything in its place and how you walk through it exactly right. Religion or this relationship with the God of the universe. The God that says, I pour grace upon grace on you, and I forgive your sins, and there's no longer this system that you have to work through, but instead you just get to be blessed. And so there's this tension that's happening as Paul writes this letter, uh, and, and we're getting to that. And we get to the end of it today, and actually I've been lying to you. We're not going to get all the way to the end today. Okay, We're actually going to stop short. Uh, we're going to stop just before the greetings and farewells. Um, and that's worth reading. It's, it's instructive, and I'll encourage you to do that. But we're going to focus in on five verses today um, in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Okay, and so that's where we're going to live today as we see, okay, so now that Paul has encouraged the church and moved them along, how does he end this instruction? And it comes to two essential things that we're going to read in those five verses. Uh, but, but I need you to know something first. I need you to know as we read through these five verses, there's this truth out there that we've been battling all series. That as a Christian, if you're here today and you are on the outside, you're not a Christian, you're kind of just dabbling in church, somebody drug you along today, or you're just figuring out what this is all about, okay, then um, this ne next slide will actually be pretty instructive for you because you may have wrong ideas about the church. And if you are a Christian here, which means you have submitted to Jesus and you are in love with the God of the universe and you're trying to live that out every day, this will be instructive for you because it, it's, a, it's a check and balance kind of a thing. There's something that you need to know, and it's this. What we are preaching to you is not legalism. See, legalism, see, this is, and this is why this is so important. It's like the difference between um, a relationship and a religion, okay? Legalism is rooted in fear. Legalism has its, its heart in the idea that I have to do it right, and if I don't do it right, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that I won't be good enough. I'm afraid that I won't get where I need to be. I'm afraid I'll lose what God has freely given me. I'm afraid. See, legalism is rooted in fear. 
okay? It bubbles up from the depths of our heart. It bubbles up and it comes out in this pharisaical rule and law that we follow. Some churches do that. Some churches live in a system of legalism. This isn't one of those churches. But a lot of people do that. A lot of people live in a system of legalism. And the problem is that legalism will always, it feels awful, it burns us out, it exhausts us, it ruins us. Because there's nothing in a legalistic relationship with God that is motivating. It's all fear-based. It's all making sure that I've done enough. You know, we ask the question, well, if you died today, do you know for sure where you'd go? Do you know what your destiny would be? Do you know how God would respond to you? And people that are legalistic, their answer is, I hope so. Remember, we've talked about this, the conversation that I've had far too many times in my short 10 years as a pastor on the deathbed. If I hope so. But the reality is, when we understand who God is, we're not driven by legalistic fear. We're driven by love. See, holiness comes from love. Love from the God of the universe. See, some of you thought you were off the hook, by the way. Some of you are like, see, I don't have to be legalistic, which means I can do whatever I want, and it's fine. No, it's not. If you've learned anything uh, from me as your pastor, well, I'm going to say, like, like, I hope you've learned a lot of things from me as your pastor, but one of them I hope that you've learned from me as your pastor is, is that you can't be friends with your sin. It's not okay. It never will be okay. God won't look kindly on that. But the, the thing is, it's not about legalism, it's about holiness. See, legalism stems from fear. Holiness stems from the love of God. See, when you stop and think about it, that the God of the universe loves you to such a high degree that he looked at, he, he looked at the world, he saw the brokenness, he saw your sin. Think about this. In your head right now, just think about your worst sin. Whether it's your affair, perhaps it's your abortion, Perhaps it's your addiction. Maybe you walked out on your family. Maybe you're stuck in some kind of sexual sin. Whatever it is, get this now. The God of the universe who creates all things, who sustains all things, looked at you and said, you know what, yeah, 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 I know. I know about your sin. I know about your brokenness. I know about the worst things that you've ever done. I, I get it. I know about your proclivities. I know you struggle with homosexuality. I get it. I know it. I understand that it's there. But you know what? Here's the deal. I need you in my family. I've got to have you in my family. And so Jesus Christ happens and, and God steps into human history and he dies this sinner's death on a cross for our sin and he raises again. And so we've got this relationship now and that love, that mega off the charts, ridiculous love. It's crazy. 
Okay? But when we get that, well, I don't respond legalistically because I'm afraid. I respond by pursuing holiness because what else am I supposed to do with that kind of love? Some of you that continue to live in sin, okay, um, that you continue to just pour anger out and, and for no reason and you just can't figure it out or you refuse to forgive even though you know what the Bible says or you refuse to submit to God in all things because you know what's happening. I, listen, I would submit to you that one of the reasons that you feel free to continue to do those things is because you have no idea. You don't understand the depths of the love that God has for you. Because if you understood the depths of the love that God has for you, you would not be content to continue to hurt him in your sin. I, when I forget, like, there are times when I'm content to continue to hurt God in my sin, with my sin, and it's because I forget my call to holiness, and I forget the way and the depth and the range of his love for me. Listen, as Paul wraps up this letter to the church, um, to the Colossian church, he, 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 he's been telling them the whole time, he's been telling us the whole time, that look, we don't do things because it makes God like us more. We do things because a love for God flows through us and it naturally pours out. To the outside world, it looks the same. I mean, this is what you have to understand, right? This is why it gets so confusing for non-Christians and why we continue to screw it up inside the church. Because what happens is legalism and a life pursuing holiness look the same to people on the outside looking in. I get up and I read my Bible. People on the outside say, well, that's pretty legalistic. You'd be safe to sleep in. Yeah, but I don't do it because I'm afraid I'm going to lose what God put in front of me. I do it because God loves me so much. What else am I supposed to do? I cut sin out of my life. Well, see, you're being legalistic again. No, no, I'm not. It's that God loves me to such depth that how could I continue to live like that knowing what he paid to have me in his family? And this is the tension that we wrestle with. And we get here to the end today and, and we're going to go through these last few verses and we're going to chunk them and we're going to go through it a little bit of a time and we're going to see these essential things that are put out there for us. And really it comes down to these two things. Look, if you are living and you are pursuing a holy Christian life, then you will excel at two things. And I would be willing to bet that the grand majority of you excel at neither. And you could say the same thing to me. This is, this is, a, a, this is a, a text that should sting it should hurt. I know it hurt me as I studied it this week. Odds are we excel at neither, but what Paul says to the church um, is when you understand the depth of God's love for you, when you live a life that is rooted in holiness and a relationship with God, not one that's based in fear and legalism and grounded in religion, when you understand it and you get it, you will excel at these two things. And so you do with that what you need to today as we study this. But we'll start with Colossians 4.2, and it's simply this. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert and thankful mind. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind 
and a thankful heart. I think I said it wrong the first time. That's why we put it up there. That way, if I say it wrong, you can, your faces will go, what? And I'll be able to say, oh yeah, I did it wrong. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Do you know what that's not saying? That's not saying be good at saying grace. That's not saying, hey, um, make sure you say the Lord's Prayer all the time. That's not saying, hey, you know what, when, when, um, <laughs> you know, when, when you're about to do something hard, say, okay, God, please help me. That's not what that's saying, okay? See, some of us, we're good at praying, but our prayers are anything but devoted and alert and thank-filled. Our prayers are tragic. My prayers oftentimes are tragic. My prayers are tragic because they don't take into account who I'm praying to. Think about the prayers that you utter. What do you pray for? Safety? Stuff? Comfort? And if not for yourself, for your kids, for other people, we pray because we want those surgeries to go well. Listen, I want surgeries to go well. We, we pray because um, we, we, want, we want to have the right resources. I love resources. Big fan of resources. When was the last time you prayed a bold prayer, though? When was the last time your prayer threatened the kingdom of darkness that we live in? See, but Paul says, when you are a sold-out Christian who understands how much God loves you, this is what you're going to do. You are going to devote yourselves to prayer. You are going to be sold out for prayer. You are going to be broken in prayer. You are going to do everything in prayer. Listen to me. Do you know that what happens with prayer is we take Christians, especially in this culture, this country, um, and, and it, the church is to blame for this. You can pin this one on me and people like me and our elders and other elders in other churches because we don't do this well enough, okay? And it's one of the things that we talk about and we've continued to wrestle with this. How do we increase the spiritual temperature and the prayer level of the congregation? But here's what happens, right? And, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not talking about, well, we should just start saying the Lord's Prayer again. If, if that's what you think I'm saying, then you really need to listen hard, right? You really need to get involved in this because... The call is for something so much bigger than that. When was the last time you prayed prayers that were dangerous? That you prayed prayers that mattered beyond your own circle? That you made prayers that put Satan on the defensive? That you prayed prayers that put yourself in his crosshairs? When was the last time you poked the... Ugh, when was the last time you poked the bear with your prayers? You, ever, you know that expression, right? It's the expression we use in our house, apparently when I'm in a mood. There's, listen, I get in moods, 
I think they're all pleasant. <laughs> My wife disagrees. And there are times when she'll say to the kids, don't poke the bear. Like, you know what? That would have been fine yesterday. Not today. Aubrey, don't do it. Don't poke the bear. And they know, right? They know they should tread lightly. When was the last time you spit in Satan's face? Some of you have kids that are wandering from the faith. When was the last time you weeped and wrestled with God for those kids to come back? Some of you are mired in addiction and attraction that isn't biblical, and you're mired in behavior that isn't biblical, and sometimes you see that it's wrong, and sometimes you just don't care. When was the last time that you, that you wrestled with God about that? That you weeped over that? See, our prayers should be marked by something so much um, better than this thing that we do in the church. And, and I started to tell you about this and I got sidetracked. It happens to me all the time. But what we do is, is we take Christianity and we say, okay, it's all about Jesus. It's all about this relationship. It's all about freedom. It's all about this and it's good. And then we say, okay, so now take prayer and we want you to attach it somewhere. So the Christian life should have prayer. So we take prayer and, and, and we do it like an add-on. You ever buy a car? Okay, and you look at the price of the car and you're like, well, that's not bad. And then you realize that that's the base, base, base model. If you want doors, you have to pay extra, right? If you don't want to have to crank the windows, like they still make those cars, right? Uh, then you got to pay extra. So what we do is we take Christianity at the base, base, base model, and we say, you know what? We're feeling extra holy today. We're going to add on prayer, right? We're going to get a prayer addition, right? So we'll say grace, We'll pray when we wake up in the morning. We'll say, hey, God, good morning. Thanks for a beautiful day. And we'll go about our day. And if I get a flat tire, I'll say, oh, Lord, help me. Right? We do that. We'll add it on, and it'll be great. The problem is that if we really understood, again, my metaphors always fall apart halfway through, so bear with me. If we really understood, then, then the base of the car would be prayer. The car would be built around prayer. Because the Christian life doesn't have prayer as an add-on. The Christian life has prayer as the epicenter. And our prayers are not simple and easy. Our prayers should be bold, and they should be persistent, and they should be dangerous. See, I'm convinced that this is why we don't Pray boldly and persistently is because they're dangerous. What we want, what we, what we think we want is, is we, want, we want to know that when we pray that God will do whatever it is we ask him for. So here's what we pray for. We pray for a healthy meal, right? We pray, we pray for easy stuff. You know, God, make him feel better. We don't pray. I'm going to tell you a story, and, and you're going to, because you're in church, and you're going to be thinking, oh yeah, well, it's in church, so it must be a good story. But deep down in your heart, you're going to think, ah, I could never pray that prayer. What happens if it didn't go well? What happens if it's wrong? But um, Martin Luther, 
1540, Martin Luther was, was praying uh, for uh, Frederick Myconius. You see, Frederick Myconius was his like, right-hand dude, right? He was his assistant, his friend, his confidant. And so Martin Luther, of course, leader of the Reformation, um, is, is going through this process, and it's, and it's daunting, and he relies on, on his best friend and his assistant, his partner in ministry that does these things with him. And he gets word in a letter that, that Marconius is dying. He's actively dying. In fact, by the time he gets the letter, by the time Luther gets the letter, um, Marconius has lost the ability to even speak. So what Luther does is he pens a letter back and he sends it to Marconius and he says, I forbid you to die. He says, I've asked God to heal you. He says, I've asked God very specifically this thing, that you outlast me, that I will go before you will go. And he says, and I know that that is exactly what will happen because I've wrestled with God in prayer. And I know that, get this, I know that my will this is, this is Luther talking now. I know that my will will be done because my will is that the Father be glorified in and through all things and I need you as a partner for ministry. Now, we, we hear a prayer like that and we say, well, that is a little ridiculous. We would never tell God what's going to happen. But Luther did. And you know what happened. Myconius recovered fully, lived another six years, and died two months after Luther. And we hear a prayer like that, and we're like, yeah, okay, that's fine. But no, we would never. See, but it's because we're afraid. We're afraid of what happens when we pray big prayers. Have you ever prayed a huge prayer, and then God didn't answer it? And then you're like, okay, well, I better not do that again, because either it means that God doesn't like me, or that, I, 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 that God just can't do what I want him to do, or God isn't able but when we pray prayers that are in lockstep with God, that are all about the glory of God, then we have confidence that things will happen. See, Luther didn't pray, oh God, you know what, I need you to save Marconius because I'll be lonely and sad. What he says is, I'm not finished with my work and I can't do my work without him. And my work is all about glorifying the Father. You're here with a husband that doesn't know Jesus, you're here today and you have a husband that doesn't know Jesus. Why would you ever let a day go by without wrestling with God in prayer? You're here today and your kid has walked away from the faith or your wife thinks that this whole church thing is nuts. Why in the world would you not spend every second wrestling with God? Your prayers should be bold and they should be persistent and they should be dangerous. That's what Paul's telling the church here. He's saying, look, be devoted to prayer. And in case you're confused what that looks like, he says, here's how you can pray for me in a prayer that's bold and persistent and dangerous. And he says in Colossians 4, 3, and 4, pray for us too. This is Paul and those that are, that are with him. Pray for us too that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That's just a fancy way of saying the gospel. Give us many opportunities. Pray that God will put opportunities in front of us so that we can be dangerous to the world and we can spit in the devil's face and we can share the gospel that pushes him away. And then he says this. Oh, by the way, that's why I'm here in jail. 
That's why I'm here in chains. So pray that I'll keep doing it. Pray that I'll proclaim the message as clearly as I should. What would we be praying for there? Pray that I can get out of jail. The food is terrible, right? My guards are mean. Pray for a political revolution. We need a new president. One that will honor... No, 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 no. He's not praying for any of those things. Our prayers are flaccid and weak. He says, my life is in jeopardy. I'm going to die. Paul knew at this point he was going to die for the gospel. You know Paul died for the gospel. Paul was martyred for the gospel. He knows that. He's in prison. He's not confused about how this is going to end because the only way he gets out of prison is to deny Jesus Christ and the one who sent him. And he is not about to deny Jesus Christ or the one who sent him. He knows he's going to die. He doesn't pray for a change of heart from the emperor. He doesn't pray that Jews will start to be nicer. He doesn't pray that the guards will fall asleep with the gate unlocked. You know what he prays for? Give me opportunities to keep sharing the gospel as long as I can. Our prayers are, are weak comparatively. Pray that I can be compelling. When he says clearly, pray that I can be compelling and complete and uncompromising as I share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's asking for. Then he moves on. The last two verses in this chunk, and, and this is where we'll, we'll wrap up for the day. Don't get excited. We still got a ways to go, but this is, this is where we'll wrap up the letter is what I should have said, okay? Um, but what happens is some of you are like, whoa. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> Especially some of you kids were like, whoa. No, it's going to be all right. But here's what happens, right? Here, here's how this plays out. Um, so the call is um, to pray. And, and Paul says, pray with devotion, like be devoted in your prayer. Have an alert mind. By the way, alert mind doesn't mean not tired. Right? Some of you, the, the only time that you pray is when you're getting ready to go to sleep. Go ahead, be honest. I want you to raise your hand if sometime in the last week you fell asleep praying. That's not bad. I once was in a small group, way, way back, small group plug for, for just in general. This is way back when Carrie and I were in a small group. Uh, her name was Pam. Um, Pam had issues, right? Pam wasn't perfect, but I remember, maybe it was Tanya, one of the two. Somebody said this, this thing um, in our group because I, that, you know what? What better, what better way to fall asleep? Imagine as a kid crawling in your papa's lap. Let me tell you about my day. So comfortable that you just can't stay awake. That doesn't bother God. But if that's the only time that you're praying, then you've got something missing. But when, when Paul says pray devoted in prayer with an alert mind, he's not even talking about being awake. He's talking about knowing. Know what's happening. Know what's at stake. Know that your comfort is secondary to every other thing that's going on. Know that you are absolutely in second place. Know that it's not about you. 
Know that being in prison is not the worst thing that could happen to you. The worst thing that could happen to you, Christian, is that you could not share the gospel with people that need to know the gospel. That you could not spread hope. The worst thing that could happen to you is that you could just put yourself in neutral and coast. Pray with an alert mind. See it for what it really is. The worst thing that happens to you, the worst thing that happens to you is not that, you're, that your husband leaves you because you say, no, 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 I'm raising our family in the church. That's tragically awful. But that is not the worst thing that happens. The worst thing that happens is that your kids grow up and they don't know who Jesus Christ is. The worst thing that happens is that your girlfriend leaves you because you refuse to, to continue with your living arrangement anymore. That's not the worst thing that happens. The worst thing that happens is that you dishonor God with your behavior. The worst thing that happens is, is, not, is not that that you don't get to be as a man with the man that you really think you love. That's not the worst thing that happens. The worst thing that happens is that you go live the life that you think you need and it ends up being nothing. Pray. Be devoted in prayer. Have an alert mind. The worst thing that happens is not that you have that baby that will ruin your life. It's a lie of the enemy anyway. The worst thing that happens, the worst thing that happens is that you actively choose sin over God. And that people that we love end up in hell because we didn't work to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Paul says, be devoted in prayer, and not only be devoted in prayer, but here's this thing. Be alert-minded and be thankful. We've talked about this before. Way, way, way too many curmudgeonly Christians. Just knock that off. Knock that off. There's no call for that. All right, then we get on to Colossians 4, 5, and 6, and he says, so here's the other essential piece. Here's what you do. Be all about evangelism. Live wisely among those who are not believers. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be gracious and attractive so that you'll have the right response for everyone. Okay? So Paul says, not only do you need to be devoted in prayer, okay? Here's what it looks like. I'm in jail, so be devoted in prayer for me. Be alert for me. Be thankful for me. Not that I'll get out of prison anytime soon, but so that I can do the work that I'm supposed to be doing because it's bigger than me. And he says, and you, Christian, you do this thing too. Live wisely among those who are not believers. Make the most of every opportunity. The old King James says it this way. Redeem the time that you're given. Don't let it sneak away from you. Redeem every opportunity that you have. Live wisely among those who are not believers. Listen, there's a couple of things that it means to live wisely among those who are believers. One thing is this. Live wisely among those who are believers does not mean tackle them, shackle them, and drag them to church. Because here's what you will have done. You will have gotten them to church. And you will have turned them away from the gospel forever. It's not a good idea. Right? Do not get mad. See, live wisely among those who are unbelievers. 
Don't get mad at people. We talk about this all the time. Don't get mad at people who aren't Christians for acting like people who aren't Christians. What good will that do? Live wisely. Make the most of every opportunity. You know how you make the most of every opportunity? Right? You love the way Jesus loved. And it was uncompromising and it was unconditional. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive. Some of you, two sets of people. Some of you have some split personality, identity things going on when you're here or in your small group or when you're with your friends or at the bar or at work. That is not living wisely. That is not redeeming the time that you have given. And that is not making the most of every opportunity. That is partnering with Satan instead of spitting in his face. That is not bold. It's weak. It's not alertness, but it's passivity. Paul says, make the most of every opportunity. You know what what we need to understand? Peter says the same thing. If someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Be ready. Always be ready. In season and out of season. Have a gracious response. Be prepared. You know, there's something you need to understand. It's it's this. Go back. There you go. Selfless and generous and compassionate living is unassailable. Selfish Gener- I'm sorry, woo-hoo. selfless, generous, and compassionate living is unassailable. If you want to redeem the time that you're given, if you want to make the most of every opportunity, if you want to be that person, if you want to be making movement for God, if you are taking your Christian life seriously, not because somehow it'll make God like you more and God accept you more, but it will, driven by the fact that God loves me this much that there's nothing else I can do but pour myself out for him, then you need to live a life that's selfless, generous, and compassionate. Because here's the thing. People may not always like you when you're selfish, selfless. It's a hard word to say, even harder to live. But when you're selfless and generous and compassionate, people may not like you, but you are unassailable. They cannot accuse you. Peter tells us more in 1 Peter 3. He says, and if they do, then they will be put to shame because they will have to actively lie about you. If I'm really honest with myself, this, I, I'm not awesome at this. I'm not nailing this, right? Not every day, not all the time. But if I were really living life in such a way that whenever people said something bad about me, that we all knew, well, that's a lie, right? Because his character is unassailable. Because his life is filled with selflessness and generosity and compassion. But far too many Christians have lives filled with selfishness and a me-first attitude. They lack compassion. But Paul says, no, 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 that's not how you are. Make the most of every opportunity. Live wisely. Be smart about what you do. Be unassailable. Here's what you want to be. You want to be Christians like early Christians. 
I'm going to show you something here real quick. I'll give credit to, to Andy Stanley. This is, I, I first saw this um, through him. Um, and, and there's, there's something that, and you can Google it, you can check it out historically, that, that just speaks well to us as, as a church. And we want to be like the early church. We want to, we want to continue in that vein. And so there's, there's a scenario where you've got Emperor uh, Trajan uh, in Rome. And at that time, there was a lot of emperor worship. Uh, emperors didn't actually think they were gods. Um, they just acted like they were gods, right? It was this thing where it's like, well, if you think I'm God, if you act like I'm a God, not the God, but a God, then you won't really argue with me as your emperor. You won't revolt. You won't complain. You won't, right? I mean, that was the plan. And so uh, Trajan was one, some emperors really enforced it. Some did not. Trajan was one that really emphasized and enforced. Well, there was a problem though with Christians because Christians say, ah, oh, time out. There's one God, and we are to have no gods before him. We are not to, to acknowledge any other small g false god, but, but Trajan said, okay, no, 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 you will or you'll die. And Christians, many of them stood firm. And so letters went out from the, uh, from, from the capital, uh, from Rome, to all of the, the surrounding occupied territories, uh, to governors, uh, that, that argued that you should round up the Christians and you should get to the bottom of this. You should get them to deny Jesus Christ or you should put them to death. And what we have recorded for us in history, in secular history, this isn't a biblical thing, this is secular history. We have a letter from uh, Plenty the Younger, okay? Um, the Younger is just a little nickname because his dad was Plenty and then it was like, so it's like Plenty the Second or Plenty Junior, right? Plenty the younger letters that he writes back and forth to Trajan the emperor, um, wanting to know what to do with these Christians. And he says, okay, so here's the deal. I've rounded them up, okay? I, I, I've asked them to talk, right? We can't torture Roman citizens, so we put them in jail, and we've tortured their servants who claim to be Christians. And some of them have denied the faith, but most of them haven't, and we've got a problem. There's a lot more than we thought. Says there's a lot more of them than we thought there was, and, and here's what we figured out so far. And here's parts of snippets of the letter. It says so the sum. This is plenty talking to Trajan here. He says the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meeting on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a god. So this is what we can find wrong with them. The the biggest part of their error, like because. Generous, compassionate, uncompromising living, it's unassailable. Selfless living, unassailable, right? So Plenty is saying, Emperor, I, I don't want to question you. He, in fact, he starts the letter by saying, like, you know what, it's my custom whenever something's not, when I'm not sure, I ask you because <laughs> you're a God and you know everything. So I'm asking you, what am I supposed to do with these Christians because the sum of the error that they have, the sum and substance of the fall is that they get up early on a Sunday. Sunday, by the way, then, work day. They get up before it's light outside on a work day. So it's not interfering with any workings and goings on in the city. It's not distracting anyone. It's not getting in the way of anything, right? They get up before dawn. They meet together. The biggest fault I can find in them is that they think this Jesus is God. And they sing responsive hymns to this Christ like he's a God. And this singing responsively a hymn, some of you are like, aha, we should be singing more hymns. Stop it. Just stop it. 
right? What they're singing there is, these guys don't have the Bible. These guys have scraps of letters. Scraps of letters from Paul and Peter. Scraps of the gospel. And, and this is what they're singing and reading. They don't have what we have. They don't have the full revelation. This is what they have. And, and so they're singing what they have, right? They're singing the story. Well, that's what we did this morning. I don't know if you noticed the three songs we sang this morning. We sang the story. This is my father's world. It's all his. This is my father's world. Everything belongs to him. He's up here. We're down here. But even though he's up here and we're down here, he looks in and he says, come as you are. Grace is enough. I've got you. Everything. I've got it. And then the story continues to this, but now because of this, because it's our father's world and because he says, come as you are and earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. And then we get to this last, that's, and because of all of that, you are no longer slaves. You are now children of God. His blood flows through your veins. You've been adopted into the family. It's all of this truth singing responsively. Stop worrying about hymns, how old the music is. Some of you stop worrying about how new the music is. See, you guys don't know this. I get grief from all sides. You think, you think your grief is the only grief. Oh, no, no, I get it from everywhere. Like, I heard this song on the radio last week, and we haven't sang it yet. I heard this song in 1922, and we haven't sang it yet. There's a lot of music out there. But they're singing responsively. They're telling the story. That's what they're doing. And that's all we can find wrong with them. And it gets more. Oh, emperor, it's worse than we thought. Because get this, they also bind themselves by oath, but not to some crime and not to commit fraud or theft or adultery, right? But, but the opposite. So they bind themselves by oath, not to a crime, but to not commit a crime, to not commit fraud, to not commit adultery, to not falsify their trust or refuse to re return a trust when called upon to do so. It's like, emperor, are you sure because you've got me arresting the best citizens in the empire. They police themselves. They monitor themselves. They get up early in the morning. They work hard and they promise each other not to break the law. And then, and then there's this last thing. We, we better hurry up. Last thing he says, and when that was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary, innocent food. She's over there. You know what she's got there that she's so excited about? She's like, I got to give it to my mom. It's a VBS ticket. VBS is coming. She's got a ticket. So, okay, there you go. Um, if you're listening online, that got confusing. Don't worry about it. But here's what happens. He says, when it was over, it was their custom to depart and assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary, innocent food. One of the rumors about Christians, one of the things we did to get us people stirred up about them was to tell them that they were cannibals. It was a misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper. One that we kind of sometimes still misunderstand today was that they ate people. That they ate flesh and they drank blood. That was one of the things that the emperor would say. You need to arrest these people. They refuse to follow the law. And, oh, by the way, they're cannibals. And um, Plenty the Younger is saying, oh, great emperor, I, 
I've arrested them. We're torturing them. We've killed the ones we can. The Roman citizens, we're sending back to Rome because you need to do that in the capital. We're not allowed to. But here's the problem. The sum and substance of their error is that they get up early in the morning, they bother no one, and they think Jesus is God. Oh, and by the way, they're great citizens. They don't break the law, and they police each other to not break the law. Oh, and then here's this other thing. They do. They do depart and come again to, to, to eat food, but it's just normal, ordinary, innocent food. It's bread and it's wine. So tell me what you want me to do. And what I'm telling you is that living wisely, redeeming the time that you're giving, being bold with your prayers and your life, that needs to be you. So you need to ask yourself, you know, if I'm really serious about following God and pursuing holiness because he loves me so much, if I'm really serious about that, then am I doing everything I need to do? Am I exactly where I'm supposed to be? Can people look at me and say, you know what, I've checked it out, and the only fault I can find is they think this crazy stuff. The only fault I can find is that they think crazy stuff. That's it. That's our heritage. That's, that's the church that we come from. And it was unassailable. And it should be for us. And Paul says, look, if you're a Christian, we've gone through this whole letter and we've talked about what it means to really be a Christian. Religion is not it, but it's this relationship with Christ that pursues holiness. And if it's really true for you, then you will be marked by prayer and by evangelism. Peter says, someone asks you about the hope you have as a believer, you'll always be ready to share and explain it. Always. No questions asked. Uncompromising. Ask the praise team to come up. Prepare to close this up. Um, and, and here's the thing that I want you to remember. Okay? When Paul says, always be ready to give an explanation of your hope, we had this conversation at a, a, a Bible study on Friday morning. Uh, what that means and what that doesn't mean. What that doesn't mean is that you have to give a complete defense of your faith. Talking with that lady on Wednesday, or I'm sorry, yesterday, and she's like, well, what do I say when my grandson says that the Bible's got things in it that aren't true? What do I say when this happens? Or how do I handle this? Or what do I do when? And you know, ultimately, here's what it is. Um, the hope that's in you isn't the answer to whether it's a six-day creation or whether it's millions and millions of years creation. The answer to the hope in you isn't whether or not um, there's uh, nitpicky things here or there. The answer to the hope that it's in you is simply Jesus Christ died for my sin, and then he rose from the dead. That's the hope that's in you. That, live that, redeem the time that you're given. But Matt, but, 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 but Matt, wait, I got a question. So, so is it really six days or was it billions? Of, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. You know what? We can study that. I'll, we can talk about that. But here's what I need you to know. Here, here's what's important. Jesus Christ died for my sin and then he rose from the dead. But Matt, does God really say that homosexuality is bad? Does God really, you know, you know what? Yeah, we can, we can talk about that. But, but here's, here's what I need you to know. Here, here's where my hope comes from. Jesus Christ died for my sin, and then he rose from the dead. It's simple. It's unassailable. 
It's meaningful. And if you're living a Christian life, it's bold, and there's no, there's no way to stop. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for all things. We ask you um, as, we, as we close this sermon series that you will remind us of what it means to live free and that you remind us of what it means to, to be in a relationship with you and that, yes, we pursue holiness, but not because we have to, God, but because it makes everything right. And on top of that, we've got mission work to do. Father, that, that we, we need prayers that are bold and that storm the gates of hell and that change things. And we need to have um, conversations and interactions with people that are redeeming and that are valuable and that point people to you, not that push them away. Father, we love you and we praise you and we just ask you to be with us as we try to live this out in our everyday lives.